Hey, good morning, Missio. We're going to be reading in Acts today. We're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And we will be in the NIV version. I haven't installed NIV on here yet, so I will be reading off the screen. Let's start. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judah and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky and he was going, as he was going up, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, Good to have you. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, it's good to have you. Um, two things to put on your radar. Today, if you're here, you probably know this. Today is the first Sunday without registration required to participate in the gathering. And moving forward, we're going to continue doing that. No registration required. Um, you still got a lot of emails this week reminding you that that was happening. Hopefully, we're going to like slowly decrease the amount of communication that we give to you. But here's the thing. It's a trust exercise. You have to respond, and then we'll decrease the emails. I'm just telling you how the thing will work. So that's first. So no registration required for the the remainder of the services of this year. Hopefully never again. And then uh, number two, on May 30th, we're planning to do baptism Sundays. We haven't done baptisms uh, in over a year in order to do COVID safety well. And now as we're coming to the end of that season and more people are vaccinated, um, we're going to do baptism. So if you'd like to get baptized, um, you can sign up at our website. It's missioslc.com slash baptism. If you'd like more information about baptism, you just want to know what it is, why we do it, what it looks like, then you can sign up right then and we can talk about it, um, walk through it, and get you signed up for that day or any other day in the future. Maybe you're not around on May 30th, but you'd still like to get baptized. So that is that. Now, we are in a series right now called Easter Tide. And that's both the name of the series that we're in, walking through uh, right after Lent, but it is also the season that we are in. In the historic church calendar, following Lent, following resurrection, we enter into a season called Easter Tide, where we continue to celebrate the reality of the resurrection. It's funny, sometimes it's very easy for us to put more emphasis on Lent, which is a beautiful season. Or more emphasis on Advent, which is a beautiful season, than we do on Easter or Eastertide. And yet, as beautiful as Lent is, and as beautiful as Advent is, 
that don't mean a lot without the resurrection. Without this moment that confirms that Jesus is who he says he is, that his victory is what he declares it to be. And so that's what we do in Eastertide. We celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate that we live in a new victory. And Eastertide as a church season, it recounts the 40 days that Jesus spends with his disciples following the resurrection. So after the resurrection, Jesus comes to be with his disciples and he begins to teach them and talk to them. And in the book of Acts, the writer Luke gives us a bit of a summary of what those teachings looked like. Jesus comes to explain the purpose of the resurrection, the meaning of the resurrection, the victory of the resurrection. And Luke gives us a bit of a summary. In Acts 1, verse 3, this is what Luke says. He says, After his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about God's kingdom. So this is the thing that we've been talking about throughout Eastertide that God is up to in the world, that God is up to establishing a kingdom, that God is setting a movement into place, that a new world reality is coming into fruition through the accomplishment of Jesus. And so he's teaching them about the kingdom, walking through what it looks like to be kingdom citizens. But then he adds something really interesting. That I don't know that we always connect to the kingdom. He says this in verse 4, eating together, Jesus ordered the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but in only a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is an interesting moment, at least for me, because I don't know that I often connect the Spirit of God to the kingdom of God. That might just be like an issue with my own theology, but I don't know that I often think of the Spirit as doing something with the kingdom. To me, when I think about the Spirit of God, I think about some like internal transformation. I think about healing. I think about something happening within us, some kind of sanctification to use theological language. But I think about something spiritual, something uh, personal, something individual, healing and growth. And that is all true according to the text. But In this moment, Jesus connects the Spirit to the coming kingdom. Jesus connects the work of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit to Jesus' political reality, the new movement of God, the kingdom of God. One of my professors in my doctoral program says it this way, I think it's really beautiful. The Spirit makes concrete the life and mission of God. Now the disciples understand this immediately because in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, this is what the disciples say to Jesus. As a result of all these things that Jesus had just said to them, those who were gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? So Jesus talks about the kingdom. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem and I'll fill you with my spirit. And the disciples immediately are like, oh, that means there's some restoration work happening. The kingdom is coming. Israel will be restored. We're going to be filled with some kind of power, some kind of authority, some kind of thing that enables the kingdom to come. But the disciples understand that 
immediately. But there is also something they don't understand. And so Jesus replies to them saying this, It isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So what are we celebrating in Resurrection? Well, we are celebrating at least this, that we have been empowered by the Spirit of God to, according to Jesus, witness or make concrete the life and mission of Jesus, the kingdom in the world around us. And the disciples understand that. They see it, but there are certain things that they miss. And so the question for us today is, what does it mean to be empowered by the Spirit to witness to the thing that Jesus is doing in the world around us? What does it mean to be invited to participate in the actualization of God's kingdom? And what I think we will find is that it does not look like we often imagine it looks. Now, the very first thing that happens after this moment, when the Spirit finally shows up, comes in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And we are very familiar with this moment. Starting in verse 1, here's what happens. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the followers of Jesus, were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were seating. And they saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. This is the moment that we love in the story of Pentecost. So the Spirit comes on the upper room. The disciples and the followers of Jesus and the women who are gathered there begin to speak in different languages. And they run into the streets of Jerusalem and people hear their own language being spoken. And it says many were added to their number that day and the church is birthed. And it's a beautiful story. But before you get to the moment of everybody hearing the disciples' language, when the disciples are in the streets, you have a moment where the disciples are in the upper room. Everything in me wanted to say in the sheets. You can't. The disciples are in the upper room, and all of a sudden they begin to speak in other languages. And that is a fascinating moment because just a few days later, and one chapter before this, they had asked Jesus this question, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And all of a sudden, when the Spirit shows up, they don't speak Hebrew, the original language of the Israelite people. They don't speak Aramaic, the language that Jesus most likely spoke. They don't even all speak Greek, a language that was shared amongst them by the Hellenization of the Greek Empire. No, it says they speak languages that they probably don't understand. That's the first thing the Spirit does. When you believe that the thing that God is going to do is restore your nation, it would be so disturbing, so challenging, so upending for the first demonstration of that Spirit's work to be to speak in a language and a tongue that is not your own. And yet that is exactly the first demonstration of the Spirit. 
And this is the first thing that the Spirit always does, is the Spirit disrupts our understandings. We think we know what the Spirit is going to do. We think we know what God is going to do. We think we know how God's going to move, where God is going to move, and what ways God is going to move. In fact, as American Christians, we are well-schooled in control and management and determining the outcomes of God. And yet the very first thing that happens when the Spirit shows up is to totally disrupt, upend, and challenge the assumptions of the people of Israel. You think I'm going to restore your nation? Oh, you think way too small. Now we know all throughout the New Testament that the disciples have a deeply nationalistic religion. In fact, all the way until the crucifixion of Jesus, you see specifically the figure of Peter is fighting for a nationalistic faith. In fact, when the temple guards come to seize Jesus, what does Peter do? He fights them. And Peter often refuses the crucifixion because he's like, Jesus, no, heroes don't die. They don't go to the grave. They win. They overcome Rome. They overthrow empires. They defeat the enemy. He's like, they're always struggling to understand it. And even this moment, post resurrection, post this victory being declared, they still don't get it. They're like, God, you're going to restore Israel, our land, our kingdom. And so the first thing the Spirit does is to give them languages they don't know, to challenge their understanding, to disrupt the way they think. And it would have been so disrupting. As a people group, you've invested in a nationalistic religion for thousands of years. As a Jewish man, you've invested in a nationalistic religion. Your history, your expectations, your assumptions are centered on this kind of nationalistic faith. And in one moment, the Spirit totally disrupts it. It would have been so deeply affronting. That is exactly what the Spirit does. It disrupts and challenges our understanding. And we see this happening all throughout the story of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, one of my very favorite stories, Peter receives a vision of the inclusion of non-Jewish peoples into the faith. And it takes two times of seeing the vision and then a stern talking to from God for Peter to get it. And again, in Acts chapter 15, the church has to gather all of the leaders of the church together in what they call the Jerusalem Council because what they're trying to do is figure out what to do with the unexpected work the Spirit is doing. There's a whole conversation in Acts 15. They're like, what do we do now that there's all these people who are Gentile, non-Jewish believers, who didn't come from Jewish customs, who don't have our history or our story and in different places than we ever expected? What do we do now that they're here? And the same is true of us as it is in the book of Acts. The Spirit will challenge our understandings. We think we know how God moves, how God works, how God acts. And the truth is we just have too small of imaginations to really comprehend what the Spirit is doing in the world around us. And in fact, here's what I would say. If you don't feel some contest in you. If you don't see the Spirit, this is my hands for the Spirit. <laughs> Jazz hands. Tell always a theater kid. If you don't feel some kind of tension or contest or contradiction in your heart where your own understandings are beginning to unravel, then I don't know that we're participating in the Spirit's work. If it feels easy, if it feels peaceful, it's actually, I don't know, I don't want to get too definitive. 
For where the Spirit shows up, understandings change. And that is necessary because of the second thing that we see the Spirit doing. Because as the Spirit disrupts the disciples' understandings, the disciples head into the streets. And as we know from this story, people from all over the world understand, hear, and respond to the words of the Spirit. And in this moment, something so beautiful happens where systems of division, language, borders, nationalities, are undone by the Spirit's work. Paul says this is exactly what the Spirit is up to in the world in Galatians 3, verse 28 in chapter 4. Paul writes this to a small church. He says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We were once enslaved to the world's systems. But because you are sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. Last week, we talked about how the resurrection is freeing us from the dominion of darkness. And we described that kind of strange, ethereal phrase by saying the dominion of darkness is at least three things. It is minds and hearts that are bent away from God. It is systems in the world that perpetuate sin and evil. And it is spiritual forces that are working in the midst of those things. And here, Paul is saying that the Spirit is freeing us from those very forces. Spirit is upending our understandings, healing our minds and our hearts, and even uses the words worldly systems, freeing us from systems that would seek to divide us, shape us, or keep us separate. And how is the Spirit doing that? By forming us into a people that are centered on Jesus. So you are all one in Christ Jesus. So whatever divisions, whatever hostilities, whatever borders, whatever nationalities, whatever biases, stereotypes, baggages or ideologies that sought to divide you or separate you or give you a sense of identity, they are coming undone by the Spirit's work. They are being unraveled in the same way that your understanding is and you are being made one people, sons and daughters. I think this leads to an important question, which is, if the Spirit is doing this, why do we rarely look like it? If the Spirit is promised to upund understandings, form us into a shared community centered on Jesus, why do we rarely look like a shared community centered on Jesus? Why do we look like something different? And this is actually a big issue for the Apostle Paul. And Paul likes to describe it this way, saying that we can refuse the freedom of the Spirit. Just in this book alone, Galatians, Paul will come to this theme again and again. Just a few verses down in Galatians 4, verse 9, Paul will write this. But now, after knowing God, or rather being known by God, how can you turn again to the weak and worthless worldly systems? 
Paul's seeing it happen in Galatia. And he's like, how can you do that? You've been freed, you've been delivered, you have been rescued, you've been centered on Jesus. How can you go back to worldly systems? He says the same thing in Galatians 5.1. He says, Christ has set you free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit to a bondage of slavery again. The implication is that you can submit again to a bondage of slavery. Or in Galatians 5.25, again, just a few verses later, he says, if we live by the Spirit, then let us follow the Spirit. Some translations will say, keep in step with the Spirit. And again, the implication is, you can be filled with the Spirit, you can be empowered by the Spirit, and yet you can refuse the Spirit. Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians, you can quench the Spirit, which is a fun phrase. That you can refuse to participate in the new world that Jesus is bringing. You can refuse to participate in healing. You can refuse to participate in transformation. You can refuse the work of the Spirit in your life. God is non-coercive. God will not force you to do something. Love cannot be forced. Emotions cannot be controlled. That's not how our hearts change. So the Spirit of God will never coerce us into anything. We are invited to be healed, invited to participate, and yet we can refuse the entire way. And we can refuse randomly. This is maybe the other part of the story of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter, the apostle who is participating in the work of the Spirit in Pentecost, shows up in this church and then refuses to eat with Gentile believers, Paul comes to Peter and says, you are out of step with the gospel. It's the same language that they use for out of step with the Spirit. It's like you have refused to walk in the way of the Spirit. And yet, this is Peter who has participated actively and beautifully in the work of the Spirit, who leads Cornelius into the kingdom. This is not someone who is outside the workings of the Spirit. No, this is someone who has participated and yet in this moment refuses to continue participating. We are invited to be healed, invited to participate, invited to be empowered by the Spirit, yet we can refuse participation because God does not coerce. What happens if we do participate in the work of the Spirit? Well, that leads us to the third thing the Spirit does. It gives us new understandings, centers us on Jesus as a people, and then forms us into a new community. It's where Acts 2 goes, starting in verse 32. After people have responded to the Spirit's work, it says this, These new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the community to the shared meals, and to their prayers. And a sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles, and all were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute to the, the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God. And they demonstrated they witnessed, they made concrete God's goodness to everyone. And God added daily to their community those who were being saved. Spirit disrupts our thinking, 
centers us on Jesus, unites us as a people, and then forms us into a community of just radically different ethics. This is the first thing it means to witness. Witness means a lot of things, but this is the very first thing that it means to witness or make concrete Jesus' work, is that we are formed into a community that actualizes the disrupting and disturbing work of the Spirit in our minds, that we practice the oneness that Jesus bought, that we are centered on the person of Jesus over and above our other ideologies. One of my favorite theologians, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, does it this way. The first task of the church is to make the world the world. And I love that phrase because what Hauerwas is saying is that the church is supposed to look very different than the world. It's supposed to embody a different kind of ethic, one that runs so counter to the ethics and stories and hopes and values of the culture around us that we've actually been empowered by the Spirit to live out such an ethic as that. But it is hard. So we need the Spirit's work. I think this is how we know where the Spirit is and what the Spirit is doing, is that we find that part of ourselves discomforted and entangled, and there's tension there as it begins to unravel, and we start to see systems that would divide upended, and we start to see community that practices a new way of being. That's where we see the Spirit. That's where we know the Spirit is. It's in the formation of a people who witness to another world. And this year, the question for us as we kind of close up today is if this is what the Spirit is doing, what do we do with it? How do we live in? How do we join? How do we participate? What do we do with this story? And I love the way that Acts chapter 1 kind of becomes to a close, or that first section comes to a close. It says this, After Jesus had said these things to the disciples, and as the disciples were watching, he was lifted up and taken out of their sight. And while he was going away, and as they were staring towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them. And they said, Galileans, what are you doing? Looking towards the heavens. This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. I love the visual that is created from this story. Jesus just told them this amazing thing about being empowered by the Spirit. Jesus ascends, and you just have the disciples and the early followers of Jesus are just like looking. And then all of a sudden, there's just these like two random guys behind them. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> so in my mind, they're in New Zealand, standing around. These two men see that the disciples are looking towards the heaven that says, what are you doing? Standing towards the heavens, this Jesus who is taken up from you will come again. Ascension and Pentecost, they mark new chapters in God's unfolding story for us. And it marks a moment of risk. The disciples have a question on their hands. Like they see Jesus ascending, they've heard the words that Jesus says, and they can go into Jerusalem and wait as Jesus has asked them to, but that feels like a risk. Like what do we do with this thing that 
is so different than what we expected. We thought Jesus was going to be here with us. We thought Jesus was going to overthrow Rome. We thought this was going to look different. And now you're telling us to risk in faith, to enter Jerusalem and wait. And in many ways, that's the same risk that we have been presented with. The ascension and the story of the Spirit present us with an opportunity to risk in faith. It's a risk in faith, a risk to participate in the upending work of the Spirit, but it does mean that we will be upended, our understandings challenge. It's a risk to be united and to practice new community, but that means that we will be united and forced to practice new community, and that's hard. And it may not work the way we expect it to, and not everyone will want to participate. Those are risks. It's a risk to trust the Spirit is in us and around us, empowering us to witness. That's a risk because it may not feel like it. It may not always look like it. So it's a risk to trust that Jesus is who he said he is, that the Spirit is doing what the Spirit promised to do. So the question for us is the same one it is for the disciples who are standing towards heaven. Are we going to stand around and wait Or are we going to witness to the resurrection, participate in the Spirit's work? So I want you to hold that question. And I want to ask you three more questions that I hope you would bring with you as we wrap up the service and come to the table. And here are the three questions to just bring with you to the table today. Monsieur, where is the Spirit challenging your understandings? Just as it did in that moment, Acts chapter 1, where it disrupts the way the disciples understand the kingdom, where it disrupts the way they understand Israel. Where is the Spirit trying to disrupt some of your understandings? The way that you make your faith too nationalistic, the way that you make your faith too limited, the way that your imagination is too small, the way that it restricts where God is working. How is the Spirit trying to disrupt, trying to upend, trying to change your understanding? Question two, where are you centered on something other than Jesus? Where is your identity rooted in some other thing other than Jesus? And the tricky thing about this is that like it was for the disciples, it can often be coded in religious understanding, religious expectations. But if it doesn't lead to a community of oneness where the differences that we hold are dissolved, well, we're probably not centered on something. We're probably not centered on Jesus. And finally, how can you risk in practicing new community this week? What is a risk that you can take in faith to witness to the thing that God is doing? Where is a risk that you with your community around you and your household and your neighborhood, maybe with your house church? How can you risk in this thing the Spirit is participating and doing and percolating all around you? It doesn't have to look perfect. It doesn't have to look grand. Some of the things that are listed in Acts 2 verse 42, they sound so grand, you read them all together, and yet when they're actually practiced, they're very simple. It's sharing a meal together. How beautiful that our practice around the table witnesses to another reality. It's praying together. It's 
giving to those who have a need. It's these practices that many of us have actually incorporated into our lives already. And God is like, I am there in the midst of it, trying to make space for my kingdom to emerge. Would you continue participating? Would you share a meal with somebody this week? Would you pray with somebody this week? Would you provide for someone this week? Where can you risk in practicing new community this week? Missy, would you bring those questions to the table today? As you entered into this room, you should have been given uh, little element cups. It's a weird way to practice communion, these little cups. But what we do when we practice this moment is we're actually participating, practicing, telling the story of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is often told to be like a large table filled with everything that we could ever need, and we are gathered to meet there. And so as we take this cup and take that juice, we are telling the story of Jesus' kingdom, and we are being formed into a people who would share meals in the power of the Spirit. So, Monsieur, let me pray for you. Take communion and bring those questions to it, and then I invite you to continue worshiping with us this morning. Spirit of God, would you upend our understandings today? Your story tells us wherever you are is freedom, and that wherever you are are deeper understandings of you. And so would you give us both freedom and deeper understandings of you, truer images of you, truer understandings of you, bigger visions for who you are? And as that challenges how we think and what we believe and how we live, God, would it shape and spread into every other part of our lives? Would it center us on Jesus and give us a new ethic, a new power to live a new reality? We just ask that you would give us that, the thing that you promised, you. So God, be with us today and send us out knowing that we go with you, filled by you, to join the work you're already doing ahead of us. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.